Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Al D. This is a show designed for aspiring current and former MBAs looking for advice on how you can grow your career through an MBA degree. During each episode, I'll talk to MBA students, graduates, and leaders about the MBA experience, navigating the workplace, and career development so you can learn how to develop and achieve your own version of career success through an MBA and beyond. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast. Today's guest is DJ Didana. DJ is a HBS lecturer, and he's also an HBS graduate himself. We're, in this episode, we're going to talk about DJ's journey to business school at HBS, his time as an entrepreneur, as well as what happened after he successfully built his first company. Uh, DJ went on to eventually decide to take a sabbatical, which then led him to exploring this idea of sabbaticals and pauses even further. And since then, he's gone on to launch something he's calling the Sabbatical Project, which does a lot of research on the value and importance of having rest in people's lives and careers. This is a really interesting conversation about not just about sabbaticals, but a broader question around how do we know that we're doing the right things in our lives and our careers and really making sure that they're aligned to the most important things that are important to us. This was a really thoughtful conversation I had with DJ, and I think you'll really enjoy it. All right. Well, DJ, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the NBA Insider Podcast. I always love starting with a warm-up question just to get to know my guests a little bit better so the audience gets to know you as well. And DJ, I'd love to know from you, what was your first job if you were if you had a job maybe when you were a kid or in middle school or high school? And So what was that first job and what did you learn from that experience? Oh, man. So many good first job experiences. I think first technical job was a friend and I started a lawn mowing business in like our suburb little town. And I thought we were making a ton of money. And then my dad would be like, it cost money for me to buy the gas for it. And you also didn't buy the lawnmower. So I feel like it was a bit of a job, a bit of a subsidized giveaway. But yeah. What was fun and what was not so fun about that? I just think that the concept of realizing that you can go out and actually get people to pay you money for something at that age. I think it was like sixth grade or seventh grade. You're working outside. Like it's fun. We had fun with like the branding and all that kind of stuff, but we didn't have a car. So you're like pushing the lawnmower all the way to the lawn that you're mowing. And so as the business expanded, it started to be a lot of transfer time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, knowing where you eventually went to in business and certainly becoming an entrepreneur, I can see how those early days can be particularly helpful and also humble at the same time. But it sounds like you were able to do a bunch of things since then. And so let's fast forward a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about what were you doing prior to going to business school? And why did you initially choose to get an MBA in the first place? So, and that was the first job that I thought about, like the first job out of college, I studied philosophy and political science. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was choosing between like a service opportunity, kind of Peace Corps, Teach for America, and then this entrepreneurial fellowship that I got cold emailed for, um, where they try to keep people in the state of Indiana. I went to University of Notre Dame, so it's in northern Indiana. And so they try to keep people in Indiana, fight brain drain. And I worked for this tech company called Angie's List, which was pretty new at the time. It's kind of like Yelp, but for like home services folks. And I had no interest in working for like a Yellow Pages, but I just loved the the pace and the speed. And the owners who who grew that were both HBS grads. And so 
it was the first time that I'd ever heard really about business school. I never thought about going to business school. I never took a business class in college, but I'd always done entrepreneurial things. And so I was like, well, I'll get my business degree on the street working at a startup. And then remember I spent like two hours trying to essentially turn and turn something, which was like an NPV analysis into my boss. And he was like, there's a formula for that in Excel. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think I have a lot to learn here. I felt like if I could have a chance to take a swing at something like Harvard in any discipline, I should go. And so even if I didn't want to be like a quote business person for the rest of my life, if I could get into HBS, I should give it a shot. I did and I got in. And so when it sounds like you were definitely interested in business in some kind of way, shape or form, but just out of curiosity, as you entered school, what did you think you wanted to do? Or what did you think you were the path or the direction you were interested in taking your career after you graduated? So I'm, I was pretty intentional about this. And it's funny. So right now, spoiler alert, I'm teaching first year entrepreneurs at Harvard Business School. And so the case we did last week was about this kind of Uber competitor called Kareem in the Middle East. And the founders are very intentional about when they were searching for a business, having their own personal values and then having business values. So they wanted to do something that was like high scale growth, made a positive impact in the world. And I think it's super important to do that. I think very few people do that. I had that laid out before business school because I felt like my time at Angie's List, while awesome, was not really what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be doing something that more akin to volunteering or doing something making a positive impact in the world more than helping grandma find a plumber, which is still making an impact in the world. And so I entered into HBS saying like, okay, I've got this great opportunity to look for something that is entrepreneurial to continue my entrepreneurial streak, uh, is more global in nature because I wanted to get out of the US and become more of a global citizen and makes a positive impact. And so that was like the whole context. I didn't apply for a single job. I didn't go to a single consulting interview or anything like that. I was just focused on finding that thing. Was it just out of curiosity, because some of the things you mentioned, looking at consulting or some of these other, not I won't call them shiny, but we'll call them attractive opportunities. Did you find that focusing on those things that align to your career values easy to focus on, particularly amidst all of the other shiny objects that you could potentially do in business school? Or was that just because you were so laser focused in on what was important to you, it just was easy to prioritize and block out all the other things? It's not easy. And I talked to a lot of my students about this, right? You have folks coming in who at the beginning of the semester were super confident they were going to get an internship in entrepreneurship. And then those internships don't come to fore until April, May, and everyone else has like internship offers. And you can see them kind of like getting more and more anxious. So it's hard. There's a ton of FOMO. There's a ton of wondering if you should be doing something different and getting some type of different experience that can help make your resume look even better. So I think what helped for me, honestly, and this isn't actionable feedback or advice, but I had no idea what private equity was and things like that coming into business school. And so it's not like I, I had it on my radar that I really need to get some consulting or private equity internship. I just had made 80 grand a year before school. My income expectations are pretty low. Like my dad's a pilot. My mom is a flight attendant. And so like for me, scrapping together a summer internship where I was learning about access to finance in Kenya and scraping together some funding was kind of the norm. And I just like I held myself so that I was not looking at other jobs. So I wouldn't even see what the number is. So I think it's to me, it's all about 
not putting yourself in a position to, to have to say yes to something that you didn't really want to do. And so I just, I didn't apply to anything for that exact reason. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't teach in business school, but I talk to a lot of MBAs about this all the time. And it is, it's so hard in the sense that part of why you go to school is because of all the great opportunities that you could potentially explore or take advantage of when you're in it. And then they all hit you in the face. And then all of a sudden, for a lot of people, it can become incredibly overwhelming. And to a certain extent, it is a little bit of champagne problems, right? What was me? I could go explore this great opportunity or potentially hear this incredible CEO or start a founder or, or whatever it is. But I do think to something that you said, that even if you don't know definitively all of your career values or the things that are important to you, being able to have at least one or two where directionally, if I can find more things that, that, that are in the flavor of X or Y, that's going to make me excited or that's going to make me really energized by what it is that I'm doing each and every day. I think that's always at least a good starting point or a good frame. Yeah, I, just on, the, on that note, I would encourage folks to just take a swing at it and try to come up with your preliminary yeah. ones. Mm -hmm. It's not like you yeah. get it tattooed on yourself, right? Like, yeah, that's a good point. Come up with your preliminary ones. Put a date in the calendar a year from now to, to look at it again. Put a date a year from now after graduation to look at it again. And just try to like, at least you're then able to weigh your decisions with your values versus saying, oh man, I took this offer. Oh no, I'm going to be doing like hedge fund analysis. That actually doesn't fit anything I actually said I wanted to do. I think that's such a great point, too, because as I'm sure you've learned in your life, things change over time and your life circumstances change and stuff happens. And what works for you in before business school may not work for you in business school, which may not work for you after it. And that ability, even if you don't know all of it, to get a chance to revisit every so often is a nice reflection opportunity and to help you, or in some cases to tell you, I'm doing the exact thing I think I should be doing. So thinking about at your time after HBS, or actually let's dial it back a second. So thinking about your time in business school, what did that lead you to after graduating from HBS? How did you take what you learned in HBS or your own career values to find that first opportunity post business school? I kind of pieced together a summer internship program where I was actually working, I don't know what part of LA you're in, you might want, not mine was safe for your super fans so they don't stalk you, but I worked in a sports ticketing startup in West Hollywood. And then I went to Nairobi and worked in like one of the biggest slums on like a Ashoka fellow who was recycling used motor oil and turning into a microfinance kind of lending for, for auto repair folks. So pretty different worlds. The sports ticketing startup was okay. I'll continue to feed this narrative of kind of startup guy and just in case everything doesn't work out and also see what it would be like to work at another startup. And then the Kenya one was trying to figure out what problem I was going to dedicate myself towards. And so that's where I truly fell in love with the ability of access to finance to change people's lives by seeing people just in this structural quicksand around not being able to provide for themselves and their families, not being able to create and grow equity in their own houses or businesses. And it was just kind of like, oh, this is access to finances is a way that I can do something that's exciting and fast growth, scalable, and also has a profound positive impact on people. And obviously the place where it's most needed is emerging markets. And so I checked all three boxes. Then I came back and I said, okay, now that I know what realm I want, I'm just going to tell everybody. So that's kind of my brand. And so whenever anyone would ask, I'd bring it up in class, like whatever. And um, the way that I found out about the company that I ended up starting was one of my section mates sent me an email from the Kennedy School, like the School of Government, 
across the river where a professor had done research on using employee pre-screening tools, psychometric tools, to evaluate creditworthiness. And it was just a paper, but they were interested in having some business folks look at it and see if there's an actual like business behind it that could be spun up. So when everyone else is going to like Jamaica and Yacht Week and things like that, I went to Peru, which still isn't a bad place to spend your winter break, and kind of wrote the business plan with a couple students from the Kennedy School. A, I think the lesson is one, I didn't know, I didn't hear about what I was doing until like way late, right? First learned about it in November of my second year. And the whole spring, we were working on like a business plan, working on submitting to the business plan competition, and didn't fully form the company until like April, May, right before graduation. So, you know, learned about it through networking and telling my network what I wanted. People want to help you out. And then the other lesson is just, if you want to start something, like it might be cutting it pretty close to the wire. You're not going to have that consulting offer in the books in September or whatever. Hey there, it's Al. And thanks so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm loving doing this show, and I hope you're enjoying it too. If you're enjoying this episode, I would really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to leave a review and rate this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or simply share it on social media or send it to a friend. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. I think what's so interesting and cool about that story is what you said around being able to tell people what it is that you wanted to do. And I think one of the interesting things about navigating a career sometimes is that the thing that you might be doing next may not necessarily be on your radar, but by being able to share either through your career values or just through your ideas around what's important to you, being able to get that out there into the world and or to around other people who are advocating for you or who are adjacent perhaps to the same interests that you have gets you potential opportunities that you could never see coming your way, such as a forwarded email about an opportunity with a Harvard Kennedy School. And so it's this interesting kind of juxtaposition, right, of, yes, like taking ownership in being an advocate for trying to find what you want and also recognizing the world is really big out there and sometimes it does take others to combine something that you are interested in with their own thinking about what could be out there to help you find an opportunity yeah exactly we talk about kind of networking is this kind of schmarmy word about right. like oh you go to mba for the network but i really think about it just more simply as you use the MBA as a place to learn about what all is out there and for a ton of diverse people to learn about what you're about. Yep. In the future, you collaborate by working together on startups, by being an angel investor. It just diversifies your network in a really cool international and multi-sectoral way. So you start this company, you found this company, you do the, I think you did it for quite some time. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and what eventually after going through it, what happened next? Yeah, it was totally bananas. We founded it and the day after graduation flew to South Africa, the, the largest bank in sub-Saharan Africa wanted to pilot it across seven countries. And so um, I had no, I'd never worked in a bank. I had never been to South Africa <laughs> and like my co-founder and I, he had never worked in banking or credit scoring, but we had kind of created this ad hoc kind of research that you could turn into a credit score. And so we were just like winging it in this executive office. And, you know, we negotiated this pretty huge contract that 
allowed us not to have to raise funding. And we basically had the next three years planned out for us. It was like, okay, we're going to launch this in Kenya and Ghana and Nigeria. Where are those places? How do I get a visa? Who do we hire? So it's just the coolest possible startup problems to have where you have kind of product market fit, you have customers and you just got to figure out how to get it done. And so that, like, that was my life for six years, just, okay, now we're going to Indonesia. Now we're going to India, just rinse and repeat. So it was an incredible ride. I got to live and work and visit probably 40 countries. And so I really got that check that box of becoming like a citizen of the world. And then all of a sudden kind of burnout snuck up on me. We had every single kind of cool thing, marquee event happened to us, like Harvard Business School cases written about us, me on the front of New York Times. We had over a million people got over $2 billion worth of funding that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So like really made an impact, but then just burnt out. And I think even talking about burnout now versus five years ago is so different because I didn't know anyone who had burnt out five, six years ago. You kind of talk to like consultants or bankers who are like, I'm feeling burnt out. Yeah, that's because you're working 100 hours a week and you hate your job. But to like be in your dream job and doing something that makes an impact and also just not feel like you can get yourself out of bed for it was pretty, pretty confusing. So co-founder and I talked, we kind of worked out a sabbatical policy. So it took four months off. And then um, that's how the next chapter of my life started. So I want to sit there for a second on the burnout piece, because I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think the burnout from just sheer amounts of hours works, I think is something that I think directionally, a lot of people can understand, even if they haven't experienced it directly. But the other kind of components of, of burnout in terms of that idea or notion of depersonalization, or not necessarily feeling attached to what it is that you're what it is that you're working on. And some of the other elements are just, it's a little bit harder to, I think, maybe put words around or feelings around. Could you share just a little bit more, just thinking back, what did that feel like if it wasn't just, I'm working 100 hours a week? Like, what did you experience or what was the impact of those, of those feelings of burnout? Yeah, it just kind of felt like you were wearing a heavier and heavier backpack every day. Yeah, What it looked like was me having really bad facial hair, even worse than now. And my co-founders being like, hey, do you want to maybe clean yourself up a little bit? <laughs> just like clinical, like depression symptoms, like being snappier towards folks, just everything's harder. And luckily, I think we had a great culture of, of openness and transparency inside the organization. But I think I also want to emphasize like burnout is one part of the story and one way to tell it. But the other way is that in the back of my mind, I was like, I've been doing this for six, seven years and I have all these other things that I want to do both personally and professionally. And I think after a few years in an organization, if it's fast growing, you start to, you're doing less, fewer and fewer new, exciting things and more and more like, okay, let's, we did this once in Indonesia, let's sell to the second, third, 10th, 12th bank. And so the part of the business and the, and what I think I'm good at in startups was becoming less and less important. And systemization and structure and that kind of stuff was becoming more and more of the job. So it was this kind of burnout and then also wanting to do other things and also the nature of the job changing. And I think we don't really have a great story with work around how that stuff evolves and like what you should be on the lookout for. And hey, it's okay to only be a first stage kind of founder thing. And this is how you should feel at year five or something like that. So I think I was navigating that feeling like I was the first person to ever 
experience it, which obviously I was not. <laughs> no, not at all. I used to be a consultant. And one of the things that I often found sometimes with other consultants is that particularly people who were used to doing the same thing, that at, it got to a point where it was harder, not because they didn't enjoy the work, but because they had done it so many times that they lost that almost that learning that they were yearning for the, of why they took the job in the first place. And so in some cases that meant they needed to go do another type of work. And in other cases, it was just they needed to go and leave consulting and to do something else. But that it was really hard for them because to what you were saying, uh, on paper, it made sense. They were getting to do the type of work that they had fought to do or that they were good at or that they thought that they enjoyed. And it was just this idea that they couldn't really have the language for and really voice into words because you're right we don't necessarily have or not yet have the language to to navigate some of those nuanced situations where it feels like on paper this should make sense and that i am called or should be doing this but it also feels like not something isn't exactly right yeah yeah it's very disorienting and so i didn't really know how to fix it i didn't have any role models of folks who had gone through this but I had a vision for what I wanted to do if I ever got a bunch of time off. And I was like, you know what? Let's just do this. Like, I can't go forward anymore. So I should need to like go around. Yeah. And so set out on four months away, which I hadn't taken more than two weeks off since, I don't know, high school or something. So it's like, wow. that was an inconceivably long amount of time Yeah. going into it. But like once you're in it and afterwards, you're like, man, that really disappeared in a flash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk about the sabbatical. What was it like? How did it go? What did you get out of that experience? What I wanted to do was I wanted to invest more in my spiritual side. I felt like that thing was important to me, but was never urgent, like going on this search of like religion, spirituality. And I had walked a little bit of the Camino de Santiago in Spain. It's like this, I don't know, six, eight week pilgrimage, five week pilgrimage. And I wanted to do something that was in a different part of the world, something maybe more aligned with like Buddhism. And so I did this pilgrimage in this small island in Japan called Shikoku. So you like walk to these 88 temples like scattered among the mountains on this island it was totally an insane thing to do and like you're you're wearing like like a hat that shields you from the sun and the rain carrying a stick with a bell on it sleeping on the side of the road and these little kind of huts they build for the pilgrims and but it was totally humbling it was a kind of a spiritual like journey is tough beating myself up about like should i have left the company what should i do should i go back physically difficult you're walking with like 20 20 to 25 miles a day but it really just i think pilgrimages have these kind of recipe where no matter what you go into it feeling i think you come out feeling very empowered you come out looking at the world very differently and came out of that and spent some time in taipei just like eating every food imaginable and trying to regain all the weight that I'd lost and then came back and said, you know what, I think I'm going to step back and dedicate some of my time more on the volunteering side for a year and then figure out what's next. What I ended up figuring out was the sabbatical itself had changed me so profoundly, which sounds corny, but like it just changed the way I thought about the world. It's like, hey, I actually don't need to worry about money. I can always go and work at like Amazon or something. Not that I would like want to do that. And (laughs) I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about prestige. Like I'm really free to shed what I was working on and not feel guilty about wanting to do something different. And 
feel comfortable with uncertainty in a way because I feel like I had a kind of safety net. The company ended up getting acquired, like our company, like a year and a half later. So it was kind of like a, oh, that's like a nice kind of validation and like a little bit of a financial cushion. But it was that kind of freedom coming out at that point that made me want to research sabbaticals. I was like, what's going on here? I mean, something, this is more than just a vacation. And every person I talked to who had taken one had felt the same way. So given that I had started a company based on social science research before, it was like, all right, let's go out there and figure out what's happening, put some language to it and try to get this out into people's mindsets. So I want to ask you about the research that you found and what you've done that before I do that, I want to sit for a minute and I fully believe it when you say that the sabbatical changed you. And I, I do understand why it might sound corny, but I believe it to be true. But could you share a little bit more into the ways in which that shaped or changed you in terms of whether it's about how you view work, how you view life, how you view your career, your relationships with others? What did it feel like to be changed by like an experience that was so different than your day-to-day -day for the past seven to 10 years? Yeah. It's tough. And I, I do feel pretty distant from it. Like it was six years ago, six years ago. And so it's funny. I think about it as like you get kind of in these like wagon ruts, right? And then you don't zoom out often. And so I think you're focused in general on just like what's ahead of you, right? Like relationship, work, like eating, like exercising, rinse and repeat. And I think it's very tough to get out and get perspective about what really matters. So that values exercise, right? From from way back that from way back when. I didn't have way back when on it be there for my friends and family, like geographically, physically, right? Show up. And what I realized was that in so doing and in, in starting and growing that company, I'd made a lot of impact, but I'd kind of not been as reliable of a friend, son, things like that. And so I think that brought that into relief because Mar like marquee events on my sabbatical was the pilgrimage, but I also took care of my mom. She was sick, cooked her dinner every night for a month. I wrote my first song and performed it. I remodeled my own kitchen and built a deck. Like all these things I never felt like I, I would do, I did. And those like added like a richness to life and really gave like a high definition aspect to what life could be like. I don't have to be in some exotic place to have like a rich, full life. And I think the other thing is just, I think probably like grieving and loss, like grieving about feeling like I had to leave the business, even though I wasn't, my job wasn't done there. I don't know why, but just, I can't kind of deny that I'm just not as motivated by doing it. And what does it mean to, you can conceptually know like, all right, like my job, my, my time as a consultant or whatever is over, but in order to really live into what it could be next and to be comfortable with not having certainty about what that could be, I think is easier said than done. And so shedding that identity over the course of a few months and not talking to anyone you meet about what you do and instead of having kind of conversations about who you are i think helps you to come back and be like i don't give a shit that people think i'm a consultant like i i'm an artist or whatever it is so so that was your experience with your first sabbatical but since then you've gone on to learn quite a bit about sabbaticals in general could you talk a little bit about what you've learned and the perhaps maybe the sabbatical project more broadly yeah. And just b before I forget, I think that business school is the world's most socially acceptable sabbatical. Yes. I think it is, it is this thing where you step away from routine work for an extended period of time, which is kind of like the definition of a sabbatical. And you get to meet people, learn about like everything, how everything goes, what jobs are out there all around the world. You get to try some jobs on for size, doing internships, doing special projects. You get to travel. 
and then you get finished and everyone pats you on the back and it's pretty expensive, but it's transformational for folks. There's very few people don't take it seriously and they're just treated as like a vacation. So like all that to say, I think I view the MBA and like the book that I'm working on, like one of the chapters is about the MBA as this kind of like life sabbatical. So I'm no preaching to the choir, but definitely encourage folks to, to take that opportunity if it's something that's available to them. So then I started the sabbatical project as just a home for the research and to kind of like create, start creating some community around the idea of taking time off because it is pretty lonely, right? Like when you're out there, you're on your own personal journey and it's, it feels very uncomfortable to be around folks that are on the straight and narrow and like working and seemingly happy. Some of the learnings that we had are the importance of disconnection. So geographic disconnection, helping psychological disconnection. So you don't have to be walking on a pilgrimage in Japan, but can you like at least get a, a week or two where you're in a different place so you're able to kind of like downshift from, from your normal life? People fail at this all the time. And so I'll just take a little kind of part-time consulting gig so that I have a little bit more cash and extend my runway. That ends up taking up way too much time and headspace than it kind of gives you. I think people don't understand how difficult it can be. People assume that because you're off work doing something that sounds super fun, but often people are working through a lot of stuff. Yeah. And really like in the research, we talk about how folks can use a sabbatical for kind of just exploration, kind of extended vacation, uh, which we call a free dive. They can use it as more of a working holiday to say, I'm going to write a book or I really want to really work on this hobby in a way that kind of feels job-like or get like a yoga teacher certification. Or they can go on this kind of like seeking exploration, which is what I did, which is more like a kind of a spiritual journey. So lots of different flavors. I think that people can use at different times in their lives and for different purposes. But yeah, the MBA is a good one to kind of bookend your career with. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And I think one of the things that it speaks to is that there are very few times in your life where you do get that opportunity just to pause for and kind of pause a beat and, and just to be able to think. And um, certainly there's a bazillion other things going on in business school, don't get me wrong, but collectively that to your container is your ability, if you so choose, to really pause and really think and reflect to think about what have I done and what do I want to do moving forward? And I also think one of the other things that kind of comes up for me when I think about something like a sabbatical is that I, if we look at something like professional sports and or any other profession where you're performing, all of those individuals who are at the top of their game are actually spending quite a bit of time outside of whatever it is they do, whether it's playing football, playing soccer, being a performance artist and playing in Carnegie Hall. But they spend, the, one of the top performing artists in the world doesn't perform at Carnegie Hall 365 nights a year. They do that maybe five, two, three, and they spend a ton of other time practicing and resting so that when they get that moment to perform in Carnegie Hall, they absolutely crush it. And so I think the idea of a sabbatical is a really good reminder, I think, to a lot of us that even if we do want to index on high performance, however we define it, define it, an element of that is finding time to rest, recharge, and reflect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the pieces that our research really added to the existing literature is just 
there's a lot of research around how do you solve burnout and kind of like healing and being offline and out of work. But what we found is that there's like an active healing, active recovery aspect of sabbaticals where you're not just sitting around on the beach sipping coconuts. You're doing something that's important to you, but it's not routine work, right? It's like I was learning how to, I, I literally remodeled the kitchen myself, like for putting the cabinets like together to hanging them to the only thing I didn't do was cut the freaking like kitchen counter out of like quartz, right? And so that was awesome. I don't, I'd never consider myself a handy person. And you can definitely tell that it wasn't done by a total professional, but I got to learn how to construct a kitchen via YouTube, right? And do it myself. So it was very empowering, but I wasn't sitting around. I was like working probably 14 hours a day, driving back and forth to Ikea, watching videos, hanging stuff up, swearing, all that kind of stuff. This like active healing, active recovery is, is something that's pretty new. And no one thinks that business school, even if you're viewing it as like a two-year vacation, no one thinks that it's like easy or chill, right? There's a million things going on. Like it's very high effort activity, but I think you come out of it having opened the aperture to what's possible, having actually put into practice some of those things via internships. And that's another aspect of our research. Just like if you can dedicate time to practicing and trying something that you think you want to do, you can really answer some questions about whether you should do that in the future. Like one story I think about is a former consultant MBA person who I was like, when I retire, I want to own like an eco lodge in like Costa Rica or something. So he worked as a chef in an eco lodge in Hawaii and he got to see all the inner workings of the place, what it's like to work there, what the problems are, pick the brand of the owner. And he was like, actually, this seems kind of like a horrible idea. I definitely don't want to do it, but I'm glad I experienced it myself first. And it was kind of fun. And now I know that I don't want to do that. And so I can kind of pull forward learnings that I would have gotten in the future to now. So it's kind of like a time machine. So you get the, as you mentioned, you are a instructor, professor at Harvard Business School now, which means you get to work with a lot of emerging and aspiring leaders and people who I know are very driven in their career and want to do big things. What is your general kind of advice or how do you help them just think about this juxtaposition sometimes of wanting to be successful, however you define success, working hard, and also just being able to do that in a way that makes it sustainable or doesn't burn you out or doesn't drive you to unhealthy places? I think the first, the thing I spend the most time doing is trying to remind students and get them to fully believe that they can take risks. I think ironically, the more kind of like quotes prestigious a place you end up in, the more I think responsibility people feel to do something totally epic and like prestigious after that, right? So it becomes instead of getting this like golden passport, it's like golden handcuffs. And so it's like, hey, trying to remind folks, A, no one cares about what you do for your internship between first and second year. Use it as a way to like experiment, hypothesize, ask questions, see what you're curious about and a way for you to differentiate yourself from other people by saying, yeah, here's what I did. It's totally random. I volunteered in Kenya for a month, but I was really excited to do it. Kind of has helps you kind of shine as a person, I think, and come off as more unique in a traditional job search. But the other thing that my former kind of Angie's a CEO said to me when I came to HBS is you got to go out after you leave and take a risk. If someone that graduates from a place like HBS can't take a risk, like who are we expecting to do that, right? You have such a cushion to fall back on with 
their resume and the network and all that kind of stuff. You would think and you would hope that a place like this would just encourage people to take enormous risks and people will be out there taking huge swings to really solve important problems and do things that folks are really passionate about. The cool and heartening thing about that is since from when I was here, I graduated in 2010, the percentage of folks that are pursuing entrepreneurship versus like banking and, and consulting has switched. I think at least half the class that I can kind of notice is really serious about doing entrepreneurship very early in their careers, if not right after HBS. Whereas before, the stats are that 50% of HBS graduates start something within 10 years of graduation. Um, but I would assume that's higher now and like higher more closely in, in proximity to graduation. So like that's really heartening. The economy is tough right now. And so I think similar to when I graduated, we entered the fall that Lehman kind of crashed. And so you're in business school being like, holy shit, there goes my private equity consulting offer, like investment banking consulting offer. Um, but it resulted in a disproportionate amount of entrepreneurship activity from my class. And so tons of founders, tons of entrepreneur activity from that vintage year. So yeah, that's like an, kind of an overview of how I think about it. So now that you are, have come full circle and come back to teaching at HBS and also just evolved so much from when you started off your career mowing lawns, or more, or in this case, maybe working at Angie's List. How have you evolved your own thinking about what success in your career means to you? Listen, I think that to me, success is about being able to live out your values, right? Being confident that you can don't have to trade off what you feel like you want to do and what you want to bring to the world with what your opportunities are. And really not caring about what, not integrating what other people think into that decision-making process, right? So figuring out what your values are, what you want to do, and making decisions based on your context, which uh, might not be exactly what you want to do at that moment, like you might have financial or familial kind of responsibilities, but just being able to live consistent with your values, I guess, is what I would say. DJ Didana, thank you so much for joining the MBA Insider podcast. If people want to learn more about you, your your upcoming book, or anything about the sabbatical project, where can they go and where can they find that information? So you can go to the sabbaticalproject.org for information about that. I can, LinkedIn is the place where I normally am at. You can connect with me there. We also have a Facebook group that's actually gotten pretty kind of lively. So if you're on sabbatical or thinking about going on sabbatical, you can get answers to your questions in real time from folks. And I think LinkedIn is creating some groups that are similar to that as well. So LinkedIn's a good place to watch us. But yeah, we'd love to connect. We'd love to be helpful. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.